Two and a Half Admins, episode 88. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post plug, Alan, is Build Your Own NAS Part 2, tuning. Yes. Uh, so if you're paying attention a week or two ago when we came up with the first part on how to build your own NAS instead of using a, a prepackaged distribution, this is part two that involves installing and tuning the OS. And then uh, soon look out for part three where we get into actually sharing the files. Right. Well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the news that's dominated the tech world over actually the last few weeks now is Elon Musk buying Twitter for $44 billion. Before we get into whether we think this is a good thing or not, is this actually going to be a thing? That's the first question. Is this going to go through? Because he's made the offer, it's been accepted, he's got the money sorted and everything, but it takes a while for these things to actually go through with all the paperwork. Right. Well, actually, I think the news came out today that the two sides have agreed to a $1 billion break agreement. So if one side or the other backs out... They have to pay the other side a billion dollars. That is correct. That makes it seem like they both feel pretty confident that they're not going to be the one to back out of it. Yeah, and I can't really see any regulatory reason why it wouldn't be approved. Uh, You know, Musk doesn't have any other social media holdings, so I can't see any kind of monopolist angle. I I don't know. I, I just I can't see why a regulatory agency would fail to approve it. Uh, The kinds of trouble that uh, Musk gets up to on Twitter. I don't think him owning Twitter is going to make it any worse. Honestly, I think it's just going to make it. I think it's going to make the the crap rain down on his head that much quicker if he if and when he gets up to his usual shenanigans after he owns it. But I don't see why that should prevent him from owning it. Right, like his consent decree with the SEC about posting stuff about the stocks and so on doesn't change one way or the other whether he owns Twitter or not. It just means they can penalize his entire damn company if he does it again, basically. Yep. It's interesting. This is the biggest leveraged buyout ever as well, because about 24 of the $44 billion is borrowed. Although it was funny to watch like all the banks in North America just line up to lend him money. It's not a real big surprise that uh, the buyouts get bigger. Yeah. Inflation aside, you know, wealth keeps concentrating in fewer and fewer hands, which implies that, you know, the big purchases are going to have bigger numbers applied to them. Yeah. Well, it also goes to show that, you know, turns out Musk is only betting $20 billion of his dollars and $24 billion of other people's dollars. I mean, that's just rich guy 101. Yes. Well, in fact, it's like he, he's kind of skewing a little more towards using his own money than his usual. Yeah. One, once you move past a certain level of wealth, you just you don't use your own money for any venture. You You get backing for it, regardless of whether you could just pay for it out of your pocket or not. That's what gets you rich. It's what keeps you rich. Right. It goes back to the old saying, if you owe the bank $100, that's your problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, that's the bank's problem. Yep. What about this share price of $54.20? That was just an excuse to put four twenty dollars in there because he's that immature. Because this whole thing just feels like a rich man just having some fun to me. It's like Howard Hughes style. Like He's just got more money than he knows what to do with. And he's just having a laugh with it. I think it's more to him than a laugh, but in general, I would agree with your premise. I think that he's reached the point where he feels like if he's frustrated by that company's policies, then, well, screw it. He'll just buy the company. And turns out he is, in fact, rich enough to do that. It's hard to say what he would better do with that amount of his personal liquidity. I don't think he's got any more ideas as good as either Tesla or SpaceX, or even PayPal. If he did, he would have been doing something with them. But he's just been kind of 
accumulating the wealth. You know, he's tried a couple other ventures, but you know, nothing's come from the boring company. Uh, I, I don't think he's really got anything else in the tank that's like super original to capitalize on with all the money he's hoarded. He's got that brain link thing. Is it Neuralink or something? Neuralink, yes. And I mean, it's a thing, but it doesn't seem likely to just start bringing him in tons of money tomorrow. If anything, it's a thing that he has been catching a, a ton of flack over because the biggest accomplishment it seems to have produced of late, as far as I know, is torturing monkeys, which is not super popular. Is Trump coming back then? You know, with any luck, Trump's just going to be too damn old by the time. I mean, there's there's got to be a limit to how long Trump can stay even reasonably cognizant of what's going on around him, given his age, his weight, his diet, he's got to be headed on into full like Reagan territory soon enough. Just speaking of that, and you mentioned regulatory before, the EU is like, uh, you know, hold on there, Mr. Musk. You know, we have some laws about harmful things on the internet now, and uh, you can't just go and let it be a complete free-for-all again. Yeah, and that's the downside to the, you know, the fact that he it's a leveraged buyout and, you know, he's he's only putting up half the money himself, even though the plan is for him to take the company private. Once you take on 20 billion of the bank's money, the bank does get a say in some things. So, you know, if he had just bought the entirety of Twitter out of his own pocket, I wouldn't be at all surprised for him to say, well, you know, go to hell, EU. If you don't like it, then I guess you can, you know, you can try to firewall us off, but... I'm just going to ignore you. I'm, you know, (laughs) not your citizen and you can pack sand. But I don't think that's going to be the case, you know, when he's only still only a partial investor. You know, I mean, he's a big investor, but I don't think he's going to be able to just blow off the entire European Union the way he could if he just, you know, was just going to say, you know what, as a citizen of the United States, I will just avoid putting any of my money where the EU can touch it. You can levy all the fines you want. Come get it. Well, the good question is how many EU banks were involved in the in that twenty four billion part? <laughs> yeah, if the answer was not zero, that really answers your question right there. I don't know how much they were threatening, how much was just the article I was reading, but they're like, yeah, we just ban Twitter in the EU. It's like, well, it wouldn't be the first thing they ban, but I don't know how much firewalling is actually going to work there. Well, yeah, it's it's not a it's not a case of like firewalling, like you know, if China, if you piss off China then they just don't let you in the Great Firewall. If you piss off the EU, there's no Great Firewall to keep you out of, but, you know, they just levy increasing amounts of fines until you have to... I mean, maybe your service can still be in the EU, but you can't make any money off of it in the EU, that's for damn sure. And for that matter, you can't allow any of your holdings to get somewhere that the EU can touch them. Definitely saw the trend of lots and lots of people posting on Twitter how they're moving to Mastodon, but I don't know how many of those people are going to stop using Twitter. You know, I got to be honest, I didn't even see much of that. Now, I I saw that liberal meltdown was trending as a hashtag, and I clicked (laughs) in to look at it. And it's entirely right-wing people saying weird crap about how all the lefties are leaving Twitter, and progressives saying, no, we're not, never were. (laughs) Y'all are the ones who said you were leaving, but here you are. How was your pouty little exodus? I don't know Anybody who's actually said, and I'm not saying they don't exist, but I don't personally know anyone who has said, I'm leaving Twitter immediately, you know, if Elon buys it. I I don't even really hear people making rumblings about it. People are like, oh, I don't want Twitter to suck worse than it already does. But 
I got to be honest, I'm not 100% that Elon buying Twitter will make it worse. I mean, it could. Right. Like, in general, because of the way the algorithms work, you tend to get in a bubble of the stuff you agree with anyway. So it's it's usually not that hard to tune out the stuff that's unrelated to your interests. Well, as far as tuning out, yeah, that's not the real problem. The, the problem is not that, oh, maybe I won't be able to tune out right-wingers. The real problem is that you can't allow the crazies to have their own bubble completely unchecked because they will bring more people in with them. Everybody tangential to that bubble is vulnerable getting drawn all the way into it and the bubble expands. I mean, that's exactly what's happened with U.S. politics in general, you know? Half of everybody, give or take, is always going to be conservative. But being conservative doesn't have to mean, you know, just being barking batshit insane, and it shouldn't. But when you allow the Overton window to shift for that side of the political discourse further and further and further, a lot of people have this naive idea that, you know, oh, if you make it impossible to be a conservative and not be batshit insane, then everybody will just vote liberal because that's the sensible thing to do. But thinking that means you don't really understand the human condition. The majority of voters are not going to vote outside what they feel like their personal affiliation is. If they feel like they're conservative people, they're going to vote for conservative candidates and vice versa with progressives. You know, that mythical swing voter that can vote either way in any given election, it's bullshit, man. I mean, there's, I don't know, maybe 5% of people might actually do that. What you really see is people saying, oh, I'm a centrist or, oh, I'm a swing voter. Oh, I don't like either party. But then you examine their voting record if you can and you discover, oh, hey, like, you know, I used to call myself, you know, oh, I'm I'm independent. You know, I'm not affiliated with either party. But after like 20 years of saying, gee, every GOP candidate sucks ass, like worse than the Democrats to the point that I vote Democrat, I eventually just gave up and called myself a freaking Democrat. Fair enough. Well, let's not get too far into politics. Bit late for that. Indeed. <laughs> Especially just American politics anyway. But <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, I think that this is potentially a very good thing because I think that it will make people realize how important Twitter is, which is ultimately not very. Because it just doesn't have anywhere near the user numbers compared with Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, that sort of thing. It's the media classes that are on there and they seem to value its importance way higher than it ought to be. The, the media, politicians. But really, people should realize that it's just silly nonsense and they shouldn't take it seriously. And hopefully, this change will go some way towards making people realize that. Yeah, I'm going to push back on that as well. I think you're greatly underestimating the importance of Twitter. Uh, Twitter is probably the premier social media platform for people to actually exert influence. What Instagram calls influencers is just people who know how to take pretty pictures of themselves, you know? Like, I don't think anybody's really getting their politics shifted very far one way or the other on Instagram. Facebook does more to some degree, but Facebook has just been such a morass for so long. Facebook is interesting that I agree with Joe that it has a lot more users because, you know, my mom has Facebook and she doesn't have Twitter. Uh, and I know lots, lots of people in that age group and so on are in that same position. And you can definitely get radicalized on Facebook. Everybody has a crazy Facebook uncle who's spouting all kinds of crazy nonsense or you get, you know, 
Trumpist people who live in countries where there's no Donald Trump. Yeah. It's like, how can you be so pro this? It's like not even it's a different country. Like, wake up. Uh or people going on about their First Amendment rights when well, they live in Canada and there is no First Amendment or Constitution. But if you want to make professional connections, that's Twitter. I mean, it's it's not even LinkedIn. LinkedIn is headhunter bullshit. LinkedIn is is so networking for like marketing and HR people, not for tech people. Yeah. Twitter is is where you go to talk to the best and brightest, you know, in your own professional if it's a technical profession and losing that would have a serious impact, I think. Right. Twitter is a big deal in tech and media and a couple other verticals, but it doesn't have as broad of appeal as Facebook does. But I think Twitter has more of the I hate to use the term like thought leadership or whatever. Facebook can radicalize people with the silly things, but you don't tend to be following a specific person for their opinion. You just see right. the the crap spread by everybody with the share button, which is different than on Twitter where you're, you know, actively choosing to follow a certain person because you're interested in their opinions. Yeah, agreed. Like uh, the, one of the co-founders of Stripe. I read a lot of the stuff he posts because it's always interesting. Or, or about Japan. Well, we'll have to see what happens with it. But ultimately, I don't think much is going to change. I think you're right, Jim. It's going to be broadly the same. Yeah. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely, and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac, and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash 25A. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. We had an email from listener Brett about Ubuntu and ZFS en route and ZSYS, their tool. And he linked to a couple of bugs on Launchpad and a tweet from an Ubuntu and Kubuntu developer that all seem to point to the fact that this experiment that Canonical and Ubuntu have been doing with ZFS en route might well be coming to an end soon. It'd be interesting to find out more about why. Like, I, I see we have notes here from the first bug that, you know, ZFS en route is not going to go away in 2204. It's Obviously too late for that because that's came out or is coming out eminently. Yeah, it came out last week. Yeah, it came out last week. So it's not going to retroactively drop support for it. But it does seem to imply that that might be something that would happen in 2210. I don't know if they've run into a lot of problems or of some kind and, and users having trouble because I don't know why else they would look at dropping support because, you know, once it works, it tends to not require a lot of maintenance or anything. Ah, but that presumes that it got to the point where it worked properly to begin with. Mm. And uh, I think before we go too much deeper into that, we should talk about the fact that Joe actually reached out to Canonical and got some answers. 
Yeah, so a spokesperson told me there is no plan to drop ZFS root support. ZSys has been dropped from the default experience, but is still available in the archive for ZFS users who choose to opt in. The ZSys change is effective already for 2204 LTS, which may be more relevant. And so that gets us back to, you know, where we need to be in talking about this. So we're not talking about, uh, we're certainly not talking about ZFS support going away in Ubuntu. Uh, we're not even talking about ZFS on root support going away in Ubuntu. We're just talking about ZSys specifically. And that's not really a big surprise. Uh, ZSys has been on maintenance for quite some time now. Uh, Canonical's focus shifted away. And I'm not deep enough into Canonical to say why the focus would have shifted away initially. I don't think it's so much about failings of ZSys as just that they had bigger priorities to put the developers on. But I will also say that ZSys never really got out of half-baked status. Um, it got released out into the wild when it was absolutely not really ready to be used yet. Uh, you know, for example, when it when it first made it into an Ubuntu release as, you know, an option for ZFS on root, you would get ZSys and ZSys would automatically take snapshots with absolutely no provision to prune them ever. <laughs> the hooks had been built into ZSys for, you know, a pruning tool but it was never scheduled to run. Uh, nothing worked yet. I think they did eventually add, you know, the actual functionality. I don't think they ever actually got it scheduled in there. So you still had to make your own provisions for getting rid of snapshots or else, you know, your whole root file system fills up. And it mostly it seems that you would want to use the same tool to create the snapshots as you used to remove them. And so you would just pick some other tool like Sandwhite, right? Yeah. Th so the pr part of the problem here is that Zetsis had very, very ambitious design goals. It was not a simple system. As much as it possibly can be, Sanoid is deliberately simple by design. Less moving parts, less things to fail. Uh, before Sanoid ever reached the wild, everything in there was working as well as I could possibly, you know, test and, and demonstrate for it to be working. Whereas, like I said, Zetsis went out even half complete would probably be a, a little bit uh, a little bit flattering, honestly. And it's, it does a lot of damage to a project when you do that. I mean, you look at, for example, the state of, well, I guess this is permissible since we're already talking about ZFS, but you look at the state of ZFS when it went out into the world versus the state of Butter when it went out into the world, and where is Butter 10 freaking years later? And I saw Joe and Alan both just start laughing before I could even get anywhere near saying Butter because they knew where I was going, but am I freaking wrong? <laughs> I was not laughing. I was smiling because Joe, I, I was smiling because I agreed with you. Yeah, it just, it does a lot of damage to a project when, when you do that. You, you really, in my opinion, should not be releasing projects out into the wild when they're half-baked. I mean, it's one thing to say, I haven't tested this enough, and so I'm going to call it beta, which is more the, you know, the Linux and BSD tradition, right? Like pieces of software that are, you know, 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.8 for like 10 years, and the entire world is using them in production, but they're still technically beta. But it's very much a technical, because the developers are saying, okay, we don't feel good calling this release, but at the same time, like as far as we know, ain't nothing broken in there. And that's, that's, that's just not the way it was here. This got started because Alan talked about how ideally you want the same tool to, you know, take to thin the snapshots as took the snapshots. And that becomes extra important with ZSys because 
when you do an Ubuntu ZFS on root install, it gets broken up into just an incredible number of data sets for very little good reason. And it's a nightmare trying to wade through them all and figure out what you're doing and what actually goes where. And every time you delete a snapshot, you've got to delete it in all these different places. It's a mess to maintain. I know for a fact the design goal of ZSys was, in fact, for it to take care of all this stuff. But not only was ZSys supposed to take care of pruning snapshots for you or rolling them back or whatever, it was also designed to take away the experience and the understanding of all the technology to begin with. The goal was to present a desktop user not with snapshots and not with ZFS, but with this just amorphous thing where the only thing they interact with is ZSys. And rather than saying, I need to roll back these snapshots, you just tell ZSys, oh, I want my entire system in this particular environment where it was here. And ZSys handles rolling back, it handles taking snapshots, it handles deleting snapshots, it handles everything. It's a very very ambitious goal. And it just, I don't think they ever really understood how many person hours they really needed to devote to realizing that goal. I think you recommended a couple of alternatives. Yeah. Uh, the the one that I knew about uh, off the top of my head was ZFS boot menu. I've heard mm-hmm. lots of people say very good things about ZFS boot menu. As a full-featured ZFS boot manager that provides boot environments, much like what you would see natively in FreeBSD, there's another one that seems to have been getting, uh, you know, a lot of attention lately called uh, ZECTL, Z Control, for lack of a better way to pronounce that. I can't personally specifically recommend either one of them because I've never attempted to use either, as we've talked about many times on the show. As much as I would like a, a reliable, solid ZFS on root, I personally just kind of evolved away from the need to care about my root file system much. I treat it as a replaceable throwaway. So I don't have direct experience with either one of them, but I've seen lots of people recommend ZFS boot menu. And right now, ZECTL comes up higher in Google juice slightly. So both are worth looking at. One thing I'm just curious about is the tool on FreeBSD, uh, BECTL for boot environment control. It just uses the the open ZFS, like libZFS APIs. It uses some of the internal ones. So it's tightly coupled to the version of ZFS. And we had actually thought about possibly shipping it as part of the ZFS repo just for its use in FreeBSD. But I wonder how much work it would take to make it work properly on Linux. Because I don't think it would be very much because it's doing almost everything with the ZFS library, not with anything OS specific. The only part that we're missing is the actual menu in the bootloader or whatever. And if ZFS boot menu covers that part, then it might be interesting just to see how much BECTL could do. That was uh, a Google Summer of Code project that I mentored. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. 
That's lino.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can find out more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback or anything, really, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. So Lillis writes, I'm pondering whether to set up air-gapped updates for my Ubuntu servers. Most of my servers connect to the internet via a router server only for apt updates, although some use additional third-party apt repositories. It's usually a very slow operation, so I thought maybe a good solution might be setting up a dedicated server to provide apt updates. What do you guys think, and how would you guys set it up? I've never done this before. So I'm going to preface this by saying I'm not 100% certain that I understand Lillis's environment, but assuming assuming that I'm understanding it correctly, the entire network is air-gapped except for a server that functions as a gateway to get to updates for the rest of them. So if that understanding is correct, the network's already air-gapped. We're not talking about providing any additional security benefits. Really, we're, we're really just talking about conserving bandwidth. Setting up a local apt mirror is incredibly easy. There's a ton of guides to do it out there. The biggest advice that I have is avoid the three or four different packages out there, uh, you know, called things like apt mirror and, you know, things like that that are that are aimed at getting like only the updates you want. They're all like half broken. They don't work very well. The proper way to do it is just rsync. Canonical exposes the, uh, they, they expose their apt mirrors via rsync. So you can literally just rsync the entire thing down to a local server. Super easy. Takes a long time the first time you do it because you've got to grab, you know, everything. But you can absolutely break it down to, you know, only mirroring uh, certain distributions. Like maybe you do want 2004, but you don't want 1804 and you don't want 2204. You can absolutely do that with your rsync command. But basically you just run rsync from cron, you know, every day or a couple of times a day, whatever. And it updates your local mirror with, you know, all the newest stuff from the source. Beyond that, the next thing that you need to do is you need to figure out how you want to tell your servers to use that local mirror rather than a remote one. You can go into uh, apt.conf and you can tell it exactly what mirrors you want it to use different from the defaults. What I tend to do when I set up local mirrors instead is I do a DNS-based solution because if I bring a laptop into the network, I want the laptop to use my local mirror, but I don't want the laptop to be broken when I take it away from the network and unable to get updates. So rather than have, you know, a, a local host name that only works inside the network, what I'll typically do is the network DNS will just hijack us.archive.ubuntu.com and uh, there's like you can choose to to also hijack or not hijack the uh, there's a separate security host name for apt updates and there are arguments to be made for also taking that one over or not if you do take it over then all of your updates come locally whereas if you don't take over the security name then security focused updates will still come from the internet not from your local server like I said, there's arguments to do it either way. I typically these days will just hijack both of them. So if you try to go to anything.archive.ubuntu.com, you get bounced to my local mirror instead. And my local mirror just updates itself, uh, you know, using rsync from cron once a night. Yeah, you know, it, it turns out this is what rsync was originally designed for, was keeping FTP mirrors in sync. 
Like the actual rsync protocol, not using rsync over SSH, but the rsync protocol itself is that's its entire purpose in life was to keep mirrors of things up to date. Hey, maybe now that Canonical is uh, putting ZSys on indefinite maintenance mode, quote unquote, maybe we'll get like, you know, a ZFS replication ability to run our local mirrors and not have to use our sync. That'd be pretty sweet. Presumably you can do something similar with FreeBSD then, Alan. Yep. Uh, you can use package fetch and then just everything or, or like dash eight for everything or whatever uh, to download it. And then you get it all in a directory and you can make a mirror from that. But can you replicate it instead? Because if you can't, you should be able to. Not currently because we don't actually break it up into separate data sets. So if we gave you a ZFS data set of it, it would be like 10-ish terabytes. And it would be the packages for every version, every architecture, both the latest and quarterly branches. And it gets a little out of hand. We should definitely look at uh, breaking that up and uh, having separate data sets so that you can pick one and just replicate it. I mean, you should have done that already anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't around when they set up the package building infrastructure. <laughs> Fair enough. A little busy, but yeah. I built a ZFS replication-based thing for the the old PCBSD package repos back when they were separate and when PCBSD was a thing. That one was interesting because the original, the, the, the builders they were building them on didn't have ZFS or, or weren't using it that way. So they used rsync to send it to me and then that put it into ZFS data sets that would replicate. And so we used rsync with the delayed update option. So it would put all the files in a hidden dot directory until the entire repo is transferred and then right at the very end, rename them all into place. So all the files, the, the a ZFS snapshot would either be the old version of the repo or the new version of the repo, never half and half. Yeah. But the 15 minute snapshots I was replicating meant that I was trickling out the updates to the mirrors even before they were publicly visible. Atomicity peasant style. Yep. Right. Well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember show at 2.5admins.com is the email address if you want to send any questions. You can find me on Twitter, for now, at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.